Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 30, Daniel chapters 10 and 11. I think in some ways, everything we've studied in Daniel chapters 1 through 9 was a preparation for what we're studying in chapters 10 through 12. The beginning of the book tells of Judah's exile to Babylon at God's hand due to their rebelliousness and their idolatry, which when taken together, God defines as adultery. And adultery means unfaithfulness on the part of one of two parties who've been joined together by a covenant, the most typical human covenant being marriage. So the issue was that Judah, as a nation, violated the covenant relationship they had agreed to with the Lord and what in whatever construct this violation of covenant takes place, Jehovah says this is unfaithfulness, adultery. So as a punishment, the Lord ushered his unfaithful partner out of the land he'd set aside for her, according to the Abrahamic covenant. The question now was, how to get that unfaithful partner to see and to acknowledge their wrong, to repent and to change, And then how to get them back home. How to get them back into a proper relationship with him. Thus we must always view Daniel in this one overriding context. It's all about restoring Israel. Christians are in no way involved other than by extension due to the benefits we ultimately receive as a result. Part of God's plan to rehabilitate and to restore His chosen people, both in the short term and in the long term, involved establishing a Gentile dominion over the entire planet. The most immediate goal of restoration was aimed at a portion of the Israelites called Judah, those who were in exile to Babylon. But the goal would also have a longer range effect on the other portion of Israelites called Ephraim, which Christianity more knows of as the ten lost tribes, exiled to the Assyrian Empire about two centuries earlier. Now, although indefinite and lengthy in duration, this Gentile global dominion was not the end. Rather, it was the means for achieving reconciliation between God's people, Israel, and himself, and for establishing an eventual worldwide kingdom of God to replace the worldwide dominion of Gentile governments. Thus we saw, beginning in chapter 2, a revealing of God's plan to bring about a series of four Gentile world empires, each succeeding the previous one. 
The first empire was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon to be followed by Media Persia and then later Greece and finally Rome. Where we'll continue our study today, Daniel chapter 10, is at a time when part of that prophecy had come to pass. Babylon had been conquered and succeeded by Media Persia. The first king of the Media Persian Empire was a Mede named Darius. Now he's succeeded by a Persian, Cyrus the Great. We're not to take it that there had never been a worldwide Gentile empire before Babylon. Assyria was before Babylon, nearly as large. Nor was the Roman Empire to be the end of a worldwide succession of Gentile dominionship. Rather, they were the four that would exist in historical reality from Daniel's time right on through the time of the first latter days, Christ's advent. Whatever Gentile dominion would come afterward would be a type or a pattern of those four as described in Daniel. Now as Daniel 10 opens, Daniel's an old man. He's no longer employed by the Persians. King Koresh, Cyrus, was in his third year of reigning. Two years earlier, the same king had graciously determined it was time to right the wrongs that the Babylonians had done to Judah by subjugating them, exiling them, destroying their temple. So, he emancipated the Jews. He instructed those who still wanted to go home to depart and to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem and he even helped to provide funds and material to do it. Now Daniel and the majority of formerly exiled Jews decided of their own free will to stay behind. Daniel lived out the remainder of his days and was buried in the same general area that at one time he was held captive. In the introduction to Daniel's final revelation from God, which is chapter 10, we find that Daniel was not given this revelation in a dream or in a literal vision, a chazon. Rather, this was a real, tangible, awake experience. He received a visitor from the spiritual world. And then a little later, as we find in chapter 12, two more spirit beings showed up to conclude this vision. What's the identity or name of this spirit being who brought God's revelation to Daniel? We're not told. Most of Christianity says it's Christ. I see no evidence for that conclusion. And every proof that it could not have been a pre-incarnate Messiah. For one thing, the being seems to have been inferior to the archangel Michael. As he was engaged in a confrontation of some sort with this spirit being that was assigned to Persia. And he needed Michael's assistance in order to leave after 21 days of a stalemate. It's questionable whether this spirit being who spoke to Daniel, an angel for lack of a better title, 
was Israel's assigned advocate or whether he was some sort of an assistant to Michael. And Michael actually being Israel's assigned spiritual advocate. Judaism claims that Michael is Israel's national advocate before God. Michael means who is like God. And some rabbis from ancient times have even taken it so far as to see Michael as an intermediary between Israel and God. Even referring to him as Israel's heavenly high priest. But this concept of Michael as Israel's national advocate is so accepted in the Middle East that even the Islamic Koran in Surah 2 verse 92 acknowledges him. In fact, Islam has adopted the angel Gabriel as their guardian angel, leaving Michael to Israel. That's about where we left off, I think, in our last lesson. So, let's reread Daniel chapter 10, beginning at verse 14. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10, verse 14. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1113, 1113. Starting in verse 14. So, I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the Achrit Hayamim, the latter days. For there is still another vision which will relate to those days. And after he had said these things to me, I looked down at the ground and couldn't speak. Then someone who looked like a human being touched my lips, after which I could open my mouth and speak. I said to the one standing in front of me, My Lord, is it because of this vision that I am seized with such it is because of this vision that I am seized with such anguish I don't have any strength. For how can the servant of my Lord speak with my Lord when my strength and breath have failed me? Then again someone who looked human touched me and revived me. He said, you, you man so greatly loved, don't be afraid. Shalom to you. Be strong, yes, truly strong. His speaking to me strengthened me. And I said, my Lord, keep speaking because you've given me strength. And then he said, do you know why I came to you? Although now I must return to fight the prince of Persia and when I leave the prince of Greece will come. Nevertheless, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. There is no one standing with me against them except Mikael, your prince. Now, please listen once more to verse 14 because this is the key to understanding the context for Daniel's vision of the latter days and of the end times. So I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the Acharit Hayamim. For there is still another vision which will relate to those days. Whose people is this vision about? Who's this angel talking to? Daniel. The angel says, your people. Daniel's people. Who are Daniel's people? The Jews. Ah, but that's not what most of Christianity claims or has claimed for nearly 1,800 years. 
Rather, the claim, even by one of the commentators I most admire, Dr. Keel, is that we should redefine Daniel's people to mean the church. And typically that claim, the claim that is that obviously God's people includes Gentile Christians or in the case of denominations who adhere to replacement theology, God's people are now only Gentile Christians. But here's the problem. This verse does not say, I have come to make you understand what will happen to God's people. It says, I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people, Daniel. It's ludicrous to say that Daniel's people are Gentiles of any persuasion. Since the entire scenario of the book of Daniel concerns Gentile world governments standing over and against God's world government, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is to be governed by a descendant of Jewish King David in Jewish Jerusalem, a fellow named Yeshua. See, here's the point that I've made before, but I'm compelled to repeat it time and again because of a supreme error that is built into the doctrines of so many Christian denominations. And that it also underlies most Christian novels and commentaries about the end times prophecies. The end times happenings that brings the book of Daniel to a close, the end times prophecies we've all heard about, in our modern days, in Hal Lindsey's and Tim LaHaye's books, are not about the church as they claim it is. Rather, it's all about Israel. It's all about the Jewish people. Indeed, as a result of Yeshua's work on the cross, the Gentile church is going to benefit and we're going to be affected. Wonderfully. But the focus and the intent is aim squarely at Israel and the verses say so without any ambiguity. Thus, as we get into studying the last day's prophecies of Daniel chapters 11 and 12, erase your thoughts of church steeples and stained glass windows and silver crucifixes. Rather, picture synagogues. Torah scrolls, stars of David. Until we do this, nothing I can teach you about the final chapters of Daniel are going to have any meaningful effect and truth will simply fall to the ground unheeded. As the days and years pass, you will be waiting for a religious fantasy to appear instead of what the Bible tells us is going to occur. Now, another thing about verse 14. This passage says that what will follow in chapters 11 and 12 is about a time period that's labeled here as the Achrit HaYamim, which translates into English as the latter days. I know of no Christian commentator, admitting there might be a couple I'm unaware of, who would disagree 
with the premise that the biblical term, the latter days, is referring to a messianic age or at the least a messianic appearance. Put simply, the Ahrit Hayamim, the latter days, is a biblical term uniquely coined to describe a time in history leading up to, during, and immediately following the advent of God's Messiah. However, the latter days is not the same thing as the end times. The end times is not a phrase that's even found in the Bible. It's taken from the phrase, the end of days. And while I have no problem at all modifying the end of days to mean the end times, we have to understand that this is a different event than the latter days. The end times means the end of the world as we know it. Not just from a spiritual, ideal, or or even poetic sense, but tangibly, actually. At the close of the end times, the world is no longer the same. History, in the sense we've always thought of it, is terminated. Thus, since the latter days is the biblical label for a time when the Messiah appears, and we know there's already been one appearance of Messiah 2,000 years ago, and another appearance is imminent, Messiah's second appearance, his return, then obviously there are two latter days. Yet there's only one in times. How do I know this? History didn't end. The world didn't physically change. The Gentile world governments continued to dominate our planet when Christ first appeared and was crucified at the first latter days. However, when he comes again at the second latter days, then the end times is upon us. The rule of Gentile governments ends. The world physically changes. Human history as we've known it concludes and the kingdom of God will dominate the entire globe. This is precisely what the book of Daniel tells us. And the book of Revelation expands upon it and it affirms it. Now, if we can have that picture firmly in mind, then Daniel chapters 11 and 12 will make much more sense. And we're not left to inventing things that aren't there to explain the otherwise unexplainable. Now, verse 15 tells us that Daniel fell to the ground in fear at the feet of that angel, dreading even to look up. And when the angel touched Daniel on the mouth, it seemed to indicate to Daniel that it was now okay for him to speak. And Daniel told him that it was because of what he was seeing that just caused him to go dumb. And in response to Daniel, in response, Daniel calls the angel, "My Lord." And this is another reason that most of Christianity says, "Oh, this is Christ, not an angel." See, the Hebrew term used here is Adonai. Adonai is a generic term that means Lord or Master. 
It's a common term of respect. It's not a formal title. The reason that believers get confused on this is because the term Lord, capital L, Lord, has become for us an alternative name for Jesus. It is fine among Christians to speak to one another regarding Yeshua using the term Lord because we know what we mean. But that's not what the Bible indicates or means. In fact, most of the time that we see the word Lord, again, capital L, Lord, in our Bibles, or in Jewish Bibles, the term Adonai, with a capital A, the word isn't actually even there. Instead, in the original languages, God's formal name, yud heh vav is there. But, due to a taboo in Judaism of uttering God's name, the Bible editors instead substitute with the word Lord. Or, as in our complete Jewish Bibles and in Hebrew uh, Bibles, Adonai which is merely Hebrew for Lord. So what we see in Daniel, where he addresses the angel as Lord, is just little l, Lord. And it more has the meaning of saying, Sir. It doesn't identify this being as divine. This spiritual being once again touched Daniel. And whereas before his touch revived Daniel's speech, this time it brings on Daniel's recovery from the shock of this whole thing. The angel responds with the standard Hebrew biblical greeting, Peace be to thee. This is translating the single Hebrew word shalom, which means far more than peace be to thee, but we're not going to get into that for the time being. In verse 20... It is a rhetorical question that is asked by the angel. Don't you know why I came to you? Because back up in verses 11 and 12, the angels already told Daniel what's brought him here. So this can only be the kind of a question that's trying to determine if Daniel's regained his wits after nearly fainting from this angel's sudden appearance. It's like reviving someone who's collapsed and asking them if they know who you are as a means to to diagnose if they've returned to reality. And then this angel explains that essentially this is a short visit with a short message and once delivered the angel's going to return to his confrontation with the spiritual prince of Persia after which he will then have to contend with yet another national guardian spirit called the Prince of Greece. And while he doesn't say so directly, it would seem as though we could take this as good evidence that whatever happens on earth first happens in the spiritual realm. In other words, while temporally speaking, it was going to be almost 200 years before Greece under Alexander the Great thoroughly conquered Persia, already the battles among the national spiritual advocates for Judah and Persia and Greece, these were underway in the heavenlies. And the outcome would happen before the earthly battles were ever taken up. This chapter ends with the angel telling Daniel 
that he's going to hear the truth about what will happen to Judah and to the Jews. And that Daniel's people are going to have to experience now the upheaval of the transition from the second to the third world empire. Persia will give way to Greece. The silver chest and arms give way to the bronze trunk and thighs. The ram with the two horns gives way to the shaggy male goat with the one big horn. And then we get the evidence that it is the archangel Michael who is the chief guardian angel over Israel. And this being who is delivering God's oracle to Daniel is some type of associate. Because in verse 21, Michael is directly called your prince. Let's not waste any time. We're going to move right on into the rather lengthy Daniel chapter 11. So open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11. Now, I'm going to actually begin reading this to you, starting with 10.21, since it really belongs in the first verse, uh, as the first verse, rather, of chapter 11, or 11.1 belongs as the last verse of chapter 10, however you want to work it. So here's how this works. There is no one standing with me against them except Mikael, your prince. However, I was already standing up to support and help Daryavesh, the Mede, in the first year of his reign. What I'm going to tell you now is true. Three kings will arise in Persia, followed by a fourth, who will be far wealthier than all of them. And when he's grown strong by means of his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a powerful king will appear who will, who will rule a vast kingdom and do whatever he pleases. But once he appears, his kingdom will be broken up, divided to the four winds of heaven. It won't be inherited by his descendants and it won't be ruled with the power that he had because his kingship will be uprooted and it will pass to others than his own posterity. The king in the south will be strong and one of his princes will gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion. After a number of years, they'll form an alliance. The daughter of the king of the south will approach the king of the north to make an agreement, but she won't retain her power and he and his power won't last either. Rather, she will be surrendered along with her attendants, her father, and the one who supported her during those times. But another branch from the same roots as hers will appear in her father's place. He will attack the army of the king of the north and enter his fortress and succeed in conquering them. He will also carry off his booty to Egypt, their gods, their cast metal images, their, in, their valuable gold and silver vessels. And then for some years, he will refrain from attacking the king of the north. Afterwards, the king of the north will invade the kingdom of the king of the south. But he will retire to his own land. His sons will rouse themselves to muster a large and powerful army which will advance like a flood passing through. In another campaign, it will march on the enemy stronghold. The king of the south, enraged, will set out to do battle with the king of the north who in turn will muster a large army. But this army will be defeated by his enemy and carried off. The conqueror will grow proud as he slaughters tens of thousands and he will not prevail. Rather, the king of the north will again muster an army larger than the first one. And at the end of this period, after a number of years, it will be a large, well-supplied army. Those will be times in which many will resist the king of the south. And the more violent ones among your own people will rebel in order to fulfill their vision. But they will fail. 
Then the king of the north will come, set up siege works, and capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be insufficient defense. Even his elite troops won't be strong enough to resist. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to withstand him. So he will establish himself in the land of glory, and he will have the power to destroy it. He will determinedly advance with the full force of his kingdom, but he will make an agreement with the king of the south and give him a daughter in marriage. His object will be to destroy him, but the agreement will not last or work out in his favor. Next, he will put his attention on the coastlands and islands and capture many, but an army commander will put a stop to his outrages and cause his outrages to come back upon him. And after this, he will put his attention on the strongholds in his own land, but he will stumble, fall, and not be seen again. In his place will arise one who will send a tax collector through the glorious kingdom, but within a few days, he will be broken, though neither in anger nor in battle. There will arise in his place a despicable man, not entitled to inherit the majesty of the kingdom, but will come without warning and gain the kingdom by intrigue. Large armies will be broken and swept away before him, as well as the prince of the covenant. Alliances will be made with him, but he will undermine them by deceit. Then although he will have but a small following, he will emerge and become strong. Without warning, he will assail the most powerful men in each province and do things his predecessors never did, either recently or in the distant past. He will reward them with plunder and spoil and wealth while devising plots against their strongholds, but only for a time. He will summon his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army. The king of the south will fight back with a very large and powerful army, but he will not succeed because of plots devised against him. Yes, those who shared his food will destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in the slaughter. These two kings, bent on mischief, will sit at the same table speaking lies to each other. But none of this will succeed because the appointed end will not have come yet. Then the king of the north will return to his own land with great wealth, with his heart set against the Holy Covenant. He will take action. Then he will return home. And at the time designated, he will come back to the south. But this time, things will turn out differently than before because ships from Ketim will come against him so that his courage will fail him. Then in retreat, he will take furious action against the Holy Covenant, again showing favor to those who abandon the Holy Covenant. Armed forces will come at his order, profane the sanctuary and the fortress. They will abolish the daily burnt offering, set up the abomination that causes desolation. Those who act wickedly against the covenant, he will corrupt with his blandishments. But the people who know their God will stand firm and prevail. Those among the people who have discernment will cause the rest of the people to understand what's happening Nevertheless, for a while, they will fall victim to sword, fire, exile, pillage. When they stumble, they will receive a little help, although many who join them will be insincere. Even some of those with discernment will stumble, so that some of them will be refined, purified, and cleansed for an end yet to come at the designated time. 
The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt himself and consider himself greater than any god. And he will utter monstrous blasphemies against the god of gods. He will prosper only until the period of wrath is over, for what has been determined must take place. He will show no respect for the gods his ancestors worshipped or for the god women worship. He won't show respect for any god because he will consider himself greater than all of them. But instead, he will honor the god of strongholds. With gold and silver and precious stones and other costly things, he will honor a god unknown to his ancestors. He will deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will confer honor on those he acknowledges, causing them to rule over many and distributing land as a reward. And when the time for the end comes, the king of the south will push at him, while the king of the north will attack him like a whirlwind with chariots and cavalry and a large navy. He will invade countries, overrun them, and then move on. He will also enter the land of glory, and many countries will come to grief. But these will be saved from his power, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon. He will reach out his hand to seize other countries too. The land of Egypt will not escape. He will control the treasures of gold and silver as well as everything else in Egypt of value. Put... Ethiopia will be subject to him. However, news from the east and the north will frighten him so that he moves out in great fury to ruin and completely do away with many. Finally, when he pitches the tents of his palace between the seas and the mountain of the holy glory, he will come to his end with no one to help him. Wow. What a confusing chapter this seems to be. I'm going to tell you why this causes so much trouble to decipher. It is because there are two separate latter days that are being described here. And they're intertwined. It is exactly the same problem that the Jewish sages, rabbis, and religious authorities had with the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. How could Messiah be cut off and cursed and yet at the same time be victorious and king? How can he be a lamb and a lion at the same time? How can he be a human and yet rule forever? And so, as with the Christian arguments about how to understand the book of Daniel, there's been an unending debate in Judaism about how to understand Messiah's nature and essence. This led to the understanding, at least among some sects of Judaism, that there indeed would be two separate human messiahs. Messiah ben Yosef and Messiah ben David. Messiah ben Yosef refers to Jacob's son Joseph who was gentle and caring and sacrificed himself for the good of his family. Messiah ben David refers to ferocious king David and his glorious holy wars to create and maintain an earthly kingdom of God. If Judaism could only admit that Messiah ben Yosef has already come 
in Messiah ben David is coming later and that they're the same Messiah, then they'd finally have a basis for understanding the prophets and accepting their own Messiah. Ah, but it's the same for Christians. If we can only accept that two visitations of Messiah, the one in the past, the one that's still ahead of us, naturally means, from a biblical perspective, that there are two latter days periods. Then we wouldn't have this labyrinth of illogical and fanciful end times doctrines that believers are faced with. We wouldn't have these endless debates between amillennialists, premillennialists, postmillennialists over supremacy of doctrine. All of whom, by the way, have some things right, some things wrong, because they're blind to this fundamental reality of two latter days that align with the two advents of Christ. And this blindness is caused by a fierce determination to hang on to tired old man-made church doctrines that their particular denominational sponsors hold on to but that have led the flock astray. In the same way that Judaism has held on to tired old man-made rabbinical doctrines that have led so many Jews astray. So I'm going to preface this chapter with this thought. What we are witnessing now in chapter 11 is the opposition that first began in the spiritual sphere and it is now transferred to the temporal earthly sphere of Gentile world governments. And of course, it is a violent hostility against the establishment of the kingdom of God because it's getting nearer and nearer and it is inevitable. This self-destructive resistance to the physical of the physical world to God's plan manifests itself not only with upheavals among human societies and religious institutions but even nature itself. Listen to Messiah Yeshua as he put it this way in Matthew 24, 4-14. through 14. Yeshua replied, Watch out! Don't let anyone fool you because many are going to come in my name saying, I'm the Messiah! And they will lead you astray. You will hear the noise of wars nearby, the, noise, the news of wars far off. See to it that you don't become frightened. Such things must happen. But the end is yet to come. For people will fight each other, nations will fight each other, there'll be famines, there'll be earthquakes in various parts of the world. All this is just the beginning of the birth pains. At that time, you will be arrested and handed over to be punished, put to death, and all people will hate you because of me. At that time, many will be trapped into betraying and hating each other. Many false prophets will appear. They will fool many people. And many people's love will grow cold because of increased distance from Torah. But whoever holds out till the end, they will be delivered. 
And this good news about the kingdom will be announced throughout the whole world as a witness to all the Goyim, to all the Gentile nations. It is then that the end will come. Pretty definitive. Back in Daniel 11, notice how this angel, apparently along with his boss, the archangel Michael, had already been at work upholding King Darius the Mede, the first king of Media Persia. That is, the first king to rule after Babylon was conquered was Darius. And naturally, because God was behind this and he supported Persia, dismantling Babylon to punish them, and because he had ordained that it would be Persia who would, at least at first, befriend the Jewish people and release them from captivity, then this angel of God worked to help bring this change of power about by assisting Darius. With the declaration that what he was about to say is true, the angel tells Daniel the following. There will be three kings who arise in Persia followed by a fourth one. This fourth one will be far richer and by means of his wealth he will gather strength. This strength means an army. And he'll use this army to war against Greece, who Persia has not had much success in subjugating. There's some disagreement among Bible scholars whether the wording means that the four kings mentioned here begin with Cyrus as the first one, or if it means that these four Persian kings come after Cyrus. However, history proves the prophetic accuracy if we decide that the four kings include Cyrus, which the plain wording seems to say. And since the precedence was already established in the, uh, that the visions in Daniel of the four Gentile world empires begins with the current empire that's in power, then it only continues the pattern that the vision of the three Persian kings plus the fourth one begins with the current Persian king, who is Cyrus. But there's yet another controversy about this. The king list of Persia, beginning with Cyrus, looks like this. Cyrus, Cambyses, Darius, Histaspis, and Xerxes. However, some claim the list is Cyrus, Smerdis, also known as Bardia, Cambyses, and Darius, Histaspis. Here's what the issue revolves around. Until very recently, the addition of this fellow called Smerdis or Bardia to the, king, to the Persian king list wasn't considered because very reliable historical documents all agree that this fellow was a fake. The famous Behistun inscription, the historian Herodotus, Justin, generally every ancient writer and record on the subject agrees. There was a strange happening 
when right after Cyrus died, a person impersonating Cyrus's son was able to seize power in part of the kingdom for a brief period of time. Essentially, the stories tell us that when King Cyrus was dying, he appointed his true son, Bardia, as a satrap to control some far eastern uh, provinces of the empire. His son, Cambyses, however, was to be king of Persia. But upon Cyrus's death, Bardia was assassinated. And there's some differences in how or even why this happened. And his death was kept secret from the public by his brother, Cambyses, who had planned the assassination. No doubt this had something to do with a family rivalry. Cambyses used a person who resembled Bardia to put into office as his own personal puppet to keep his brother's demise quiet and the public from having any suspicion of it. The pretender was actually named. He was a Magian priest from Media. And when some influential men found out he was an imposter, he wasn't Cyrus's son, they killed him. So as you can imagine, Bardia is not listed in the official and ancient Persian records as a king of Persia because he never was. However, as always seems to happen, some modern day liberal scholars with an agenda have recently disputed this and say there was no no imposter. He really was the king's son and therefore he must be considered a king of Persia. And why do they think this? Is there some new evidence? Is there some new archaeological discovery? No. They just don't think the story is a very good one. doesn't matter that the story is consistent from any number of ancient sources and is, of course, completely plausible. Their own academic intellect has decided that the story just isn't believable for them. But there's one other reason for this newfound skepticism that they won't say out loud. If they can establish that Bardia was actually a real king of Persia who should be on the Persian king list, but he's not, then the fourth king of Persia in Daniel's prophecy becomes Darius Histospis instead of Xerxes. And then Daniel's prophecy doesn't work out historically. But with Xerxes as the fourth king, which history validates and has validated for over two millennia, then the prophecy works perfectly. I only tell you this because you need to know about the concerted effort among liberal Bible scholars to establish a new truth derived from nothing more than a personal belief that Daniel cannot possibly be true because predictive prophecy is not possible. So they have to contrive a revised history that exists only in their minds and thoughts of which there is no evidence and then they teach it as fact. Once enough impressionable seminary students have heard it from these experts and they've had to regurgitate it in their exams and theses 
and it is written into journals and commentaries, in time it just becomes accepted fact and nobody dares question it. As Christ said in the passage from Matthew 24 that we just examined, oh, many false prophets will appear and it's going to fool many people. Xerxes, indeed, is the fourth Persian king of Daniel's prophecy. A very wealthy king. Wealthier than any of his predecessors. And Persian historical records explain that he spent his fortune building and arming a great military and he used it constantly to try and expand Persian influence including trying to conquer Greece or better Macedonia or even better Javan, which I'll explain at a later time. However, after King Xerxes, says verse 3, a very powerful king will arise and rule over a vast kingdom. Yet once this vast kingdom is established, the kingdom will quickly be divided up into the four winds. The children and family of this kingdom's king won't inherit the kingdom, which is the usual way. And the various parts of the kingdom won't add back up to the powerful unified kingdom this king had had built. This is speaking of Alexander the Great, the Macedonian Greek king who finally successfully fought back against Persian aggression, won, and then continued to conquer other nations. I mean, after all, he had a huge, well-armed, trained and experienced army. Why waste it? I put it on the shelf. He died at the young age of 32 years. History does not record any children of his in existence, except that his wife, Roxanne, was pregnant when her husband unexpectedly and suddenly died. And soon after his death, she gave birth to a male child and named him Alexander IV. But obviously this baby and his mother were in no position to oppose a number of Greek military generals who each wanted a piece of the kingdom for themselves. So through negotiation, the Greek empire was divided up originally into about 12 districts. But immediately afterwards there were a series of small wars and assassinations and conspiracies and in the end, four generals ruled over the empire each with their own district. The prophecy of Daniel remarkably came true as the Greek empire would become divided as the four winds of heaven indicating the four compass directions or of course the four geographical districts north, south, east and west that the Greek empire was sectioned into. We're going to stop here and I think I'm going to let you digest this Till next week. And then we'll begin with verse 5. I think that you might understand that we're going to be in Daniel chapter 11 for a while.